buddy. You're welcome. Oh, man. Before I get in the flesh, let's get in the word. Amen? Amen. Open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty in the aisles here. So just raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, and somebody will be nice enough to pass it along to you. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We are continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, uh, we went through salt and light and what that looks like in you know, it was, it was a very uh, rough passage for me. Um, Lord loves to convict me and kick my butt before I get to preach to you guys. And so it was, it was just one of those passages that really cut to my heart, you know, in, in the sense that us as Christians, we're not supposed to be separated from the world. You know, a, a lot of churches, a lot of preachers, they'll, they'll tell you, the world is your enemy. The world is your enemy. Stay away from the world. Okay, don't be influenced by the world. And, you know, churches will tell you this constantly. As a youth, I'm bombarded with that statement. Be away from the world. Don't affiliate yourself with the world. But, but us as Christians, we are actually to be salt and light, meaning we are to dabble as much as we can into the world to influence it uh, for Jesus. We're not supposed to take on the sins of the world, but we're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to preserve the moral integrity of the world. We're supposed to be light, and we're supposed to be that beacon of hope for the world. And that was, that was something amazing. And now we enter into this portion of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus is about to take a turn. Okay, he's about, he's about to go onto this long rant about you have heard it said by the Pharisees, you have heard it said by the religious leaders, you have heard it said to do this, but I tell you this. Okay, so, so Jesus right here, he is about to endeavor on this mission to change the perspective of his people. Meaning you have read this about the word and the law of God, but I'm telling you right now that this is what it actually means. And, and, and we know that in this entire portion and in pretty much the entire gospel, um, Jesus is an enemy of man-made tradition. Uh, Jesus is an enemy and he is completely opposed to man-made tradition. You see, there was, we, we learned about the Sabbath. There was the Sabbath and, and, and God said, take a day of rest. Take a day with your family. Take a day where you are supposed to rest and worship me. And the Pharisees had made it into something where you couldn't even help anybody on the Sabbath. You couldn't even, you couldn't lift anything that weighed more than a dried fig leaf. Okay. You you couldn't move. You couldn't do good for people. You couldn't do what God has called you to do on the Sabbath. And so, so Jesus is all about breaking the legalistic mentality in his culture. And so as we open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we got to keep this perspective that Jesus has made it clear that he is an enemy of man-made tradition. However, he has never been an enemy of the law and the word of God. We must keep that in mind. So verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh, Lord, we love you. God, your word is true and your word is holy. God, and, and I pray as, as we endeavor to learn about what you yourself said directly to your disciples, I pray we'd be attentive. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be fully yours tonight. And as Dane prayed earlier, Lord, I, I'm full of the flesh. Decrease me so that you might increase. Anything that's said of me, Lord, may it be forgotten. And Lord, teach us tonight. Oh, teach us tonight, Lord, about your character and about how amazing you are. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Since the Pharisees of this time had really held their own traditions really equal with God's, and we learned that earlier, um, when we were studying the life and ministry of Jesus, how, how, how what had happened is that the Pharisees had put their own man-made traditions at the same level of God. They had extended their own morality and their own righteousness towards the point where it was equal with God's word. And so whenever Jesus would break one of the Pharisees' rules, they would accuse him. They would have the audacity to accuse him of breaking God's law. And, and, and this is something that's absolutely crazy. That it had gotten to this point where people had extended and, and, and put their own morality on par with God's. And we're going to learn tonight that that is one of the greatest sins that we can commit. Is, is putting our own morality and our own values on par and equal with God's word and God's law. You see, because we love to make up our own rules. And we love to justify it when we sin. We just say, oh, that's just a code by which I live by. And, and Jesus wants to shatter this mentality. And, and I love it how Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets because he was being con- uh, accused and bombarded with all these accusations that, that he doesn't respect God's word. He's come to abolish God's word. He's come to get rid of all of God's law and all of God's tradition and put in his own stuff. And Jesus is saying here, I have not come to abolish anything. I've not come to destroy what God has built. I have come to fulfill what God has built. I've come to finish the mission that God has started. And if you guys would all turn with with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be very heavy in Galatians chapter 3. So I encourage you to turn there. While you're turning, I'm going to tell you that uh, Micah was with me last night. Actually, we were preparing our sermons at the same time. And uh, I ended my sermon prep around 11. And, you know, I was, I was super excited about it. I was super stoked about this message that God had given me. And I'm like, yes, awesome. And, you know, I even preached it this morning to the junior high kids. I always give a simplified version of them. And, and then about an hour and a half before service, I'd say two hours, God's just like, that was great for your junior hires, and that's good for you to learn, Zach. That's really awesome. I, I really wanted to show you that, but that's not what you're going to do on Sunday night. <laughs> and then so I, I just, God just sat me down, and he said, this is what you're going to give them. 
And so I had to destroy all my prep, preparation. <laughs> and so it's going to be fun. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. Jesus wants to make clear that the law of God is all about him. The law of God is all about Jesus. The, the law of God is all about the fulfilling of God's promises. And we're going to learn that, that there's many misconceptions about God's word because we as Christians, we view, okay, um, so before Jesus came, in the Old Testament, people had to be super perfect and super good, and, and they had to follow every single rule. And then when Jesus came, we all got to relax. You know, because Jesus came, he kind of set us free from that. Now we, we get to chill, and you know, Jesus is my homeboy type deal, okay? And, and, and Jesus is saying, no, no, that was never the point of the law in the first place. And Paul is going to further that idea right here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is not confirmed. No one annuls or adds to it. Now Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for, on, uh, for one only, but God is one. So here we go back to Abraham, which we find in Genesis chapters 12 through 15. Okay, so we have Abraham, and this is 500 years prior to the Ten Commandments. We have to keep this in perspective. Abraham, God's chosen, okay, Abraham, the one who signed a covenant with God, okay, almost 500 years before the Ten Commandments even came into existence and God's law even came into existence, okay, and, and so we have in Genesis chapter 12 through 15, this process by which Abraham discovers God, discovers his faith in God. And he says, Lord, I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to be with you. I want to be with you. And God saying, I promise you, Abraham, this is my promise to you. I promise you that through your seed, through your descendant, all the nations of this earth will be blessed. He's saying through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Abraham, that is my promise to you. That is my promise to you. And, and when you make a promise to someone, when you, when you create a contract, and this is what Paul is saying right here. He says, I speak in a manner of men. He's saying on a man, on a, you know, human standard, uh, though it is only man's covenant, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. He's saying, you know, even in a, in a human contract, okay, even in the promises that we make to one another. If I sign a contract, I don't add to it after I had signed that contract, do I? You don't annul or add to a contract after it has been signed. These are the terms. These are the conditions. And you sign it, and you can't go on later and change it. You can't go in and say, well, I want to add this thing. No, no, no. This is what we agreed on. If you want to make a new covenant, then you can change the agreement. However, God had made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I will bless you, period. 
I will bless you. He didn't give Abraham any standards. He said, because you have faith in me, and if you keep that faith in me, I will bless you. That is my covenant. And when, and if man doesn't break a covenant, if man doesn't break a contract like that, would God, would God make a, a, a change or add on to his covenant promise? No, God wouldn't do that. And so I, I, I don't want you guys to think that when the law came, when the 10 commandments came, it wasn't like, Hey, uh, yo, Israel, I know I promised that I would, you know, be faithful to you, even if you weren't faithful to me. I know I promised that I'd bless you. I know I promised that I'd give you a Messiah and all these things. But do you know what? I kind of changed my mind. I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments, and actually you have to follow these to get in heaven. Would God do that? That sounds like an imperfect God to me. That sounds like a, a rather uh, flaky God to me. You see, I, I don't want you guys to get this perspective where God made his promise to Abraham. Then he gave the Ten Commandments and says, okay, now this is the new agreement. You obey me. You obey all of these. You obey all these laws. Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, all of them. You obey all these laws. That's when I'll bless you. That's when I'll save you. That's when I'll give you salvation. Because there's this flaky perspective in Christianity where without Jesus in the Old Testament... People had to be completely perfect in order to attain salvation. That's not true. That people had to follow the entire law in order to attain salvation. This is something that I grew up hearing. And when I really read the scriptures, I'm like, that's not true. Did David, King David, break the law of God? Yeah, he did. Adultery and murder being uh, the two big ones. Would you doubt David's salvation? Would you doubt King David's salvation ever? Would you doubt God's faithfulness in his life ever? Would you doubt God's blessings in David's life? Absolutely not. You would never do that. But did David break the law constantly? Absolutely. And so, so here we, we, we see that the law was never meant for salvation. Ever. Even before Jesus. The law was never meant for salvation. Paul continues in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 3. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Okay, so despite the law and despite our ability to follow the law, despite our ability to carry out God's promises, uh, despite our ability... Um, our inability to really follow what God says, God's faithfulness still stands. So what's the function of the law? I will, I'll tell you what the function of the law is not. The law is never meant as a means to attain salvation. Good works, good deeds are never, ever, ever meant as a means to attain heaven. That's never been it. God never gave us this law and said, you must follow it. You must obey it. And if you do, I'll let you into heaven. These are my terms. 
And, and, and one thing I, I remember I had a teacher in eighth grade. His name was Mr. I'm not going to say his name. So maybe, you know, him. I, I don't want to Mr. M we'll call him. And he was just awkward. He, he was awkward. He was an awkward chemistry teacher. And, and he just didn't know how to relate to his students. Just didn't know how. He was old and he, like, it, but old in a bad way. Like, you know, people get better with age. Some people just get more awkward. And it, like, he, you know, he just didn't, like, he had totally disconnected from our eighth grade. You know, you know how eighth graders are. You know, you know how eighth graders are. Okay. Eighth graders are weird. Eighth graders are goofy. Eighth graders are annoying. I work with them every day. Okay. That's just how it is. Okay. They're smelly. Okay. And some adults just don't know how to cope with an eighth grader. Okay. And he didn't, he, 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 these are his students and he just didn't know how to connect with them. He didn't know how to connect with us. And so Mr. Matris, if he said, I can't, if I can't connect with them, I'm going to have them connect with me. Okay. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Mr. Matris was his name. That was his name, Mr. Matris. Anyone know him? Do you? For those of you who went to Kalina Middle School, yes, you know him. Mr. Matris. I said his name. Oh, my gosh. Cut that out of the video. <laughs> this guy, God bless him. He would make all of these rules so that we might relate to him. Okay, he would make all of these requirements and these rules and these weird standards of being a student in order that we might get him. God's not like that. God's not this awkward God who says, well, they're not really doing what I say and I can't really control them. So I'm just going to give them the law. That's not God. And that's not the purpose of the law. I want to be with them, but they're kind of weird. So I'm going to make them more like me before I can be with them. That's weird. And that's no way to build a relationship. If any of you wanted to be my friend, if my requirement is if you were exactly like me, I mean, would any of you really want to be my friend? No. Hey, hey, I, I would love to be your friend, but uh, here's my standards. You have to be exactly like me. That's not God. God doesn't say, you follow all of this, you act exactly like this, then I'll be with you. In fact, when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, do you know what he said first? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of slavery. I have delivered you. I have chosen you, and now here are my commandments. God doesn't give us standards before he gives us grace. God gives us grace, and then he gives us boundaries. And so, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Saying that no matter how well you follow God's rules, you will never be perfect. You will never be perfect. So the law was and continues to be a shadow or a picture of God's moral character. 
This is what the law is. This is what the commandments are. This is what the Old Testament and the words of the prophets, this is what they are. They are a revelation of God's heart. They are a revelation of God's heart and his desire for his people. We get a glimpse of God's perfectness, his perfection. We get a glimpse of this perfection when we look at his law, when we look at how spotless it is, when we look at how amazing it is. We get a glimpse of how holy and how set apart he is. We get a glimpse of just how magnificent his moral character is when we look at the law. And so the law acts as three things for us. When we look at the law, when we look at God's rules, when we look at his regulations, it it, it acts as three things for us. One, it acts as a mirror. Exposing the sinfulness in our lives. Exposing the sinfulness. It says right here that, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Meaning that when we look at God's law, when we look at his moral character, when we look at this, at, at, at his standards, we see here, we, we, we're exposed and we come to terms with our own sinfulness and our own imperfection. We look at this as a mirror, looking at our imperfections. I know I'm not the only one who looks in the mirror and just tries to look for the imperfections. And, and, and so this is what the law serves. It, it serves as a mirror where we can look and we can see how beautiful God looks and we can be exposed to our own shortcomings and where we need help and where we have strayed away from God. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing that the law acts is as a teacher. The law acts as a teacher and, and Paul describes it as a tutor. It's a teacher showing us what God looks like. Showing us and teaching us the character of God, the quality of character of God, what he likes, what he dislikes, what he desires, what he does not desire. The law acts as a teacher that when we see God, we know him when we see him. That when the Savior one day does come, and this is for the Hebrews, this is for the nation of Israel, that they would be able to recognize the Savior when they see him. The law acted as this tutor, as this mentor, to show them what the moral character of God looks like, so that when God came onto earth and actually dwelt with man, that they would be able to spot him out like that. There's the Savior. I know what the moral, uh, the morality of God looks like. I know what his character looks like. I know what he would do on earth if he were here. And so I'm going to look and spot him out. There he is. There's Jesus. So the law acts as a teacher to show us what God looks like. And then lastly, and most importantly for me, at least, it serves as a doctor. Now, if you have cancer, can a doctor cure you? No. Doctor can't cure you. A doctor doesn't have magical powers. And, and, and so what happens is the law serves as a doctor diagnosing us with a disease and then forcing us to seek a cure. See, the, the law serves as a doctor where he says, you are diagnosed with a deadly disease. You will die. Very soon. Maybe now. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe in five days. Maybe five years from now. 
You will die. This is a disease that you have. And you have no idea when you're going to die. And so, when you come to this knowledge that you're going to die and that there's a cure out there, what are you going to do to find the cure? Anything you can. The doctor serves as this mode by which we can seek out Jesus. Because God says, this is what heaven looks like. This is what it takes to walk into heaven. If you don't want grace, if you don't want Jesus, if you don't want to get salvation by somebody else, if you want to do it on your own accord, this is what it looks like. If you can cure yourself, by all means, cure yourself. But if you don't have confidence that you can follow the entire law, if you don't have confidence that you can be perfect, I have a perfect, perfect prescription for you. His name is Jesus Christ. So the law serves as a doctor. The law's purpose is to point us to Jesus. First, to expose our sin, discover our Savior, and then help us walk with him after we discover our Savior. This is the purpose of the law. And I'm going to say it again. I, I, I need to say this again. The law has never been meant for salvation. It was, it's always been the promises of God. It's always been the faithfulness of God. It has always been the grace of God that has extended salvation all throughout history. Every single human being that has ever entered into, entered into the presence of God, has ever entered into heaven, has never done it because they were a good person. It has always been by the promise and the faithfulness and the grace of God and their willingness to accept that. And so I'm going to say it again. And Paul says it for if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. The law serves as instruction, not admission into heaven. Instruction on how to live, not admission on how to get a life. Does that make sense? And so we discover that there's no way, no way we can find ourselves getting ourselves into heaven. So what about those who do believe that good deeds and excellent living gets you into heaven? How, how do we deal with that perspective? How, and, and whether it be your own perspective or the perspective of somebody you know, and this is the perspective I sometimes fall under, especially working in ministry. I, I, I kind of get into this mindset where it's my works that kind of get me in good standing with God. But, but really studying, I have found that this is frightening perspective. What do we do when we find ourselves thinking that our good deeds and excellent living can get us into heaven? And what do we do about that perspective? It, it's called legalism, by the way. Many of you have heard that term. Legalism is the belief that if I'm just moral enough, if I'm just good enough, I can find my way to heaven. If I'm just good enough. If I can just follow all the rules, if I can just follow all the law, then I can get myself into heaven. Since the law is a picture of God's perfect character, you're saying if you can follow all the law, you're God. You guys know how blasphemous that is? Saying, I can earn my way into heaven. I can be good enough to get into heaven. That's, that's you saying that I'm, I'm God. 
It's, or it's not even saying you're God. It's lowering God's standards. It's saying God's not as perfect as he says he is. He's actually down here, right on my level. I can earn my way into heaven. So God's standards are pretty much just like mine. So you're either doing something, you're elevating yourself to the holiness of God and making yourself God, or you're belittling God to yourself. This is the mindset of legalism. This is saying, if I can work my way into heaven, I can either be like God or God's exactly like me. And this is something that I I, I struggle with all the time. You thinking that your good works can get you into heaven that good deeds can get you into heaven. It's not only saying I'm God or God's as low as me. It's saying something very specific. You're saying not only am I perfect enough to get into heaven, but you're saying I'm perfect enough to be the sacrifice for all of humanity. I can take on the sins of the world. Jesus didn't have to do it. I have arrived. I can be the sacrifice. I am the son of God. And so we we realize that being legalistic, being law-driven, work-based salvation, that is one of the biggest heresies that anyone can ever commit. That is one of the biggest heresies that anyone can commit. So what do we do then with the law? (laughs) I mean... If we know that the law doesn't bring us salvation, then then what do we do with it? Jesus says here in verse 19, he says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus fulfilled all the law, and, and we, we need to know this, that, that Jesus f- was our high priest, he was our temple, and he's our sacrifice, meaning that we don't have to follow the ritual, ceremonial, or sacrificial law anymore, okay? I'm going to say that again. Jesus is our high priest, okay? He is our temple, and he is our sacrifice, meaning that we don't have to perform any of the ceremonial laws anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. We don't have to make any sacrifices anymore. And we don't have to do any rituals anymore that were in the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled that completely. He says, I have come to fulfill that law. And he says, every little detail is in place until I fulfill it. And guess what? He's fulfilled it. So these details no longer apply to us. But one thing that still does apply to us that has not left because Christ now lives in us is the moral law. What we know as the Ten Commandments and the commandments of the prophets. Okay. The moral law still applies to us. And this was fulfilled by Christ when he lived a perfect life, but it it doesn't leave us. And there's several reasons for why it doesn't leave us specifically. I'll tell you in Romans chapter six, verses one through four, I'll read it to you. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. And then in Galatians 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 20. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, so, so with the gospel, with the story of Jesus, with Jesus coming into this world, with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and raising again, with Jesus doing that, what has happened is this. What has happened is that the law was completed and fulfilled, but it has also been amplified. Okay? The law has been completed, but it has also been amplified to the nth degree. The law has been extended because of the gospel. The law actually wasn't abolished. It is actually continued on further. The law continues to go to boundaries that we don't even know. The law now, because of the grace of God and because of the gospel, is boundless. It's no longer even limited to the specific laws that are listed. Because now we have the Holy Spirit and he leads us into all truth. And he leads us to do things that we never thought we'd be able to do. Via the Holy Spirit, the law has been extended dramatically. So we see that because we are saved and because we have Christ Jesus in our hearts, it doesn't mean that we ignore the law altogether. It actually means that through us, the law is going to be fulfilled even further. It's going to be fulfilled even further. You see, and and I'll justify this using scripture. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that in your seed, all nations will be blessed. And this was something that the Israelites struggled with because the Gentiles were considered dirty, unholy, not worthy of God, okay? And, but, but, but God specifically promised all nations will be blessed. All nations will be blessed by your seed. Who's the seed? Jesus. Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the answer. And then we see when Jesus dies for our sins and raises again, what does he commission to his disciples. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You see, Christians have now become God's mode of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. You Christians, salt and light, remember? City on a hill. You Christians are now God's mode by which he fulfills the promise given thousands of years ago to Abraham. He says, I will bless all nations through your seed. The seed came. He died. He took on our sins. He rose again. We now have life with him. We have his Holy Spirit. He says, all authority that has been given to me, I now give to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Fulfill the promise that God had given to Abraham so many years ago. We, Christians, bear God's light and are the hope here on earth. Jesus wants to bless all nations. God has desired to bless all nations, not just specific people, everyone. And he uses you and I to fulfill that promise because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. God won't use someone, though, who doesn't obey him or teaches his word. God will not use anyone who doesn't have a reverence for his word. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
This is meaning this, and there's many different perspectives on this. There's actually two dominant ones, meaning if you don't have a respect and you don't have an obedience for God's law and God's word now, you're not going to get as many blessings in heaven. Then there's a second perspective, or if you really don't have a respect and a reverence for God's word now, God's not going to use you in the kingdom now. I side with the latter. If you don't take advantage of God's law and his word and his mission now, God's not going to use you now, is he? I expect God to te- you know, give me this divine revelation and speak to me and tell me exactly what he, what, what he wants from me and I won't even bother opening my Bible in the morning. I can't expect God to use me if I don't even endeavor to know him. It's called the sword of the spirit for a reason. We, we, we've, we've taken away our, our own um, right to further God's kingdom by not reading his word. You want to be used by God? Pick up the armor of God, mainly the sword of the spirit. Get to know God and he will use you. And then lastly, I'm going to close with this. And he, he says at the very tail end, which is going to be a huge shocker, to the people that were listening to him back then. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, with us, you know, for some of you who have grown up in Bible school, you get those little picture books of, um, you know, uh, the Bible stories. And the bad guy is always creepy, right? <laughs> like Judas, just dude, crooked teeth, you know, long gray natty hair, and he's just like evil, like evil eyes, like, you know, just, just looks, you know, just evil, right? You know, and, and, and then, you know, you know, Jesus looks like an Abercrombie model all the time, you know, like, you know, he's like flashing his abs on the cross, you know, it's like, it's like, what is that? But like, you know, this is what we're bombarded with. And the Pharisees, man, they always just look like sketchy dudes. You know, they always, they have that evil in their eyes and they're just, you know, that evil laugh and that weird goatee that nobody likes, you know, like the really long crooked one that goes out to here, like, Bar from Aladdin, you know, it's just, you know, it just looks just, you know, the Pharisees are always portrayed as these evil guys, right? But, but back then, the, these were actually, they were the epitome of moral code, okay? They were idolized back then. People looked at them, they're like, that is, that, if, if I can even be half as good as the Pharisees, man, I, I will be complete, all right? This, this was the perspective. And so when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven, What Jesus was saying is there's only one type of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness, the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and that is my righteousness. There's a righteousness required to enter into heaven. And guys, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of faking righteousness. You know what I mean? I'm tired of putting on a show for people. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, trying to put on this persona like I've got it all together. I'm tired of not being transparent. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of making people look like I just know what I'm doing. I'm tired of building up my own righteousness. God is saying you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, which was self-righteousness. He's saying you need my righteousness. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' righteousness, it's freely given. There's no standard there's no thing you have to do in order to get God's love. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you and he wants you. And all you have to do is say yes. 
And so I'm going to have the worship team come up, and I'm going to explain this again, (laughs) if you don't mind. God chose you. God wants you. God doesn't want you to be any type of person before you come to him. He doesn't want you to say, I'll do this first and then I'll come to God. Even if those of you who are already Christian and you say, okay, I just have to do this one thing and then I'll pray and repent to God because I cannot come to God like this right now. I love what, you know, if I, if I may, Micah, Micah was praying and he said, sometimes I feel like I'm keeping a secret from you, God, like you don't even know how messed up I am, but he does. He knows the secret sins that even your closest relatives and your closest friends know, don't know. He knows your dark secrets and he still wants you. He still wants you. He wants you so bad that he died for you on the cross. He said, I want, a, I want a relationship with that person so bad that I will be crucified and I'll pay the penalty for sin because the wages of sin is death. You sin, you die, period. And so Jesus said, I don't want any of them to die. I don't want any of them to be separated from me so I will bear that load. God, I'll live a perfect life and you can kill me. You can be, uh, I'm a perfect sacrifice. I haven't done anything wrong. You can put all the sins on me and I will bear it on the cross. You can tear my beard out. You can flog me until you can't even recognize me. You can whip my back and you can nail me to the cross. And I will take on all of the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. I will take on all of them for them. And so that's what Jesus did. He said, I love them so much. I desire them so much. Foreseeing all of your failures, all of your sins, he foresaw all of that. And he says, I still want them in my family. I still want to be with them. Despite what they've done. God's promises aren't dictated by your imperfections. And so he died for you. And that's, that's what the bread symbolizes. The body that was broken for the remission of sins. The body that was broken for you. And Jesus, his blood was pure. Our blood is tainted with sin because we don't follow God's character because we're imperfect. And that's okay because Jesus has provided a solution. He says, I'm going to live perfectly. I'm going to be perfect for you, not for my own sake, but for your sake and my glory. I'm going to be perfect. And they're going to spill my blood. And that blood is for you. And so the juice here symbolizes the blood of Christ. And I say this every time, don't I? I say it every time because it's beautiful. God says, I want to be with you for the rest of my life, for the rest of your life. Will you marry me? Will you enter into this relationship with me? Will you enter into my covenant like Abraham? Will you, will you be a part of my promise? I promise to love you. I promise to be faithful to you. I promise to never leave you. I promise to be there when you fail. I promise to pick you up when you need it. I promise to mend your relationships. I promise I'll be with you if you will just accept it. And so when you drink of that covenant, when you say, yes, Lord, you say, I do to him. And so I'm going to have everyone pray tonight. And we're going to bow our heads. And we're going to pray to God. And for those of you 
who want to say yes, who are tired of being fake like me. For those of you who are tired of being fake, bow your heads. Pray with me. Lord, I've got nothing. I'm sinful and I admit it. I'm imperfect and I admit it. But I also know this, that you are perfect. And I am amazed that you want me. I want you to come into my life, change my life, be in my life, be my savior. I know that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose again so that I might have a life with you. With everyone's eyes closed still, if you said that prayer tonight for the first time, raise your hand. Amen. Amen. For those of you that said yes tonight, we want to pray with you. We want to love on you. I'll be back there for prayer. My buddy Wilson will be back there for prayer. I'm going to volunteer Tammy Shewitt back there to pray for you also. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we give you this time tonight. And for those of you that had said yes to their covenant relationship with you, I pray that they'd be up here taking communion, ready for you, and they'd be back there for prayer, Lord, ready for you too. We worship you tonight, and we love you tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.